Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we are in Hebrews 2, and, and Hebrews 1 through 2, 4 was really making sort of one really important point. It was, it was setting the stage, and it was letting us know that the new covenant is better than the old, not as a replacement, not because the old was wrong, as we talked about, but, or bad, but because the old was always intended to be a map to lead us to the destination, which is Jesus. And so it's, it's good in that purpose, but it doesn't make any sense to go back to the road signs, the mile markers, and the map when you're actually at the location that you wanted to be in the first place. And so he, in chapter 1, one of the very strong points he makes is simply this, that Jesus is holy God. <clears throat> and so not only that he's God, that in order to, to be our Messiah, of course he had to be God. That becomes sort of clear. You're like, well, I guess of course he had to be God. Who else can save us? We're all a mess. You know, we cannot really save each other. We can't even save ourselves. And, and only God could save us. And, and for all of you who've ever said, why doesn't God just do something about the state of the world? This is his answer, that he did it in the gospel. It may not have been the way that you would have expected, and it certainly wasn't the way that the Hebrews expected. And it may not have been with the sort of drama that you expected, and it certainly wasn't with the drama the Hebrews expected. They wanted him to do something big and political and, and to, to deal with the world uh, and to build an earthly kingdom, but Jesus was actually doing something bigger. And so he's God, but he's also holy. Um, there's a little bit of pun here, wordplay. He's holy God. He's completely God. But he's also holy God. And we talked about the fact that holy means otherness. It's this idea that he's so big. He's so far beyond us. That's why he can help us. He's not like us, right? He's other than us. And, and the very first verse, verse 5 in chapter 2, kind of continues this thought. And I, and I put this in here. I started from here almost as a link between last week and this week. Because even though these are very different thoughts, they're absolutely connected and the link is important. And so here's where we start in chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So the connection here, the link to the last part that we were talking about is he's been telling us that Jesus is higher than the angels. That Jesus is bigger and more important than the angels. The, the angels aren't the ones who will be in charge of the world to come. Jesus will be, right? Because he's God. And, and so he's higher than the angels. But having said that, having established the deity, the divinity of Christ, the holy godness of, of Christ, the author of Hebrews now takes a really interesting turn, and he kind of goes the other direction. And right after talking about Jesus being above the angels, he actually begins to come down and talk about Jesus even being a little lower than the angels. So let's Let's see what he says here and what that means. So it says this, there is a place where someone has testified. This place, by the way, is in the Psalms. But he says, there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him, them, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So this is an interesting sort of thing. He's talking about mankind, right? So he's starting with mankind. He says, he says, somewhere we see in scripture, and again, it's in the Psalms, he says, it's so weird, mankind, that, that God even cares, that God even gave mankind a place. We're such a mess, we're so frail, we're so uh, up and down and fickle, and it just all, you know, who are we? We're just made from the dust of the earth. 
that the, the psalmist says, who are, what is mankind that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But then he says this, you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And I think this goes back to the creation where it says that God made men in order to be his representation on the earth. He didn't make angels to be his representation on the earth. He made mankind. He made humankind to be the representation of him on the earth so that as they walk the earth and care for the earth, everything he says in Genesis is under their dominion, that they are to care for the earth. That's what it really means. Now, the authority in scripture is always one of service and it's always one of care and responsibility. It's never one of kind of lording it over or waste or anything like that. So when it talks about men having dominion, it doesn't mean the earth is yours to do with as you want, whatever. It means it's, it was to care for the animals, to care for everything else. But this is still a big place. It means that as God wanted to do things on the earth, he was working through man as his representation, as his image. You've heard about it being said that we are made in the image of God. Well, that actually, that phrase comes from the idea of kings. Kings used to create statues in their image. And they would place a statue in a particular province where maybe they themselves didn't go so that people would know this belonged to this king. And in the same similar way, only much more extensively, <clears throat> we were made in the image of God so that people would say this belongs to God. But we also had a certain level of authority and ability that statues don't have, of course. Um, but that's the idea. So, this is the place of man. Lower than the angels, but over dominion, right? Over, over everything. So he says, you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So there, there's a certain glory to that. That God made us in his image and a certain glory to that. Then he goes on. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So he's saying originally everything, except for God himself, right? And, and that, that everything was supposed to be subject to mankind. He says, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while. So here's the thing. What does that mean, that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while? He's just done, he just finished talking for an entire chapter about how Jesus was higher than the angels. <laughs> right? That he was God. That he was, he will be the one over the world to come. Well, he's pointing out here that for a while, Jesus was what? Human. The phrase he used when he talked about being lower than the angels, he was talking about mankind. So now he's saying Jesus was made to be human. Jesus became human. This is that amazing doctrine of what we call the incarnation last week. That, that Jesus, God became a man. Well, we're going to see the significance of that. That is what the author of Hebrews wants to really speak to in this chapter is this incredible fact that God became human. And what does that look like? And why is that important? So he says this. At the present we do not see everything subject to them, mankind, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is a really amazing phrase, and the interesting thing about Hebrews is it's not going to explain exactly why this happened, although he's going to give us a lot of pictures about what this means. So it isn't as if scripture can ever, it's as if there's this, there are these rules in the universe that are beyond our understanding. There are these rules in the universe we can only get glimpses of and hints of, right? And you say, well, why are there any rules? You know, isn't God in charge? Well, I think any rules of the universe are just like the physical laws that we encountered. They're just part of the way that the universe is. And as God created the universe, he created it, created it based, you know, from who he was and his concepts, his understandings of things, which of course are perfect. And so <clears throat> things like love and justice, they're part of the universe because they are part of God, because they are who God is. 
Well, in the same way, there's other rules that are part of the universe we don't quite grasp, but we see pictures of it. And one of these is this idea of Jesus taste suffering death so that he tastes death for everyone, so that no one else has to taste it. Now, there's a lot of questions this should bring up at this point, like, don't we still die? Yeah, of course, we still taste death, right? So what is this saying? So it's okay, hold those questions, because we'll, 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 the author of Hebrews is going to unfold all this as we go. He makes big statements, but then he dives deep. So he is going to unfold this. But for now, he's just kind of bringing up this concept that Jesus had to become human so that he could actually suffer death, because God can't die, right? In order to taste death for everyone, he had to be like everyone. He had to be human. And so this is what he says. He goes on and says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Which leads to our next question. How is one who is already perfect made perfect? So he talks about Jesus here, right? He says that Jesus is above the angels. He's God in chapter 1. Spends his whole time talking about how he is God. Chapter 2, he tells us he's been made human and then says this interesting statement. That the one who made the universe, God himself, had to be made perfect, right? The pioneer of our salvation, being Jesus, being God, <laughs> had to be made perfect. And he's talking about somehow he was made perfect by becoming human. And what does that mean? How did one be made perfect? What was lacking in Jesus in reference to his salvation for us, right? God doesn't lack anything. How can we be described as not being complete? Perfect means complete. How can you describe the God of the universe as not being complete? Well, first of all, we're dealing with words the best we can when speaking about things which, again, are beyond our comprehension. So I suspect even saying things like he was made perfect or made complete is even still not quite a, an accurate way to describe God. But it's, we just only have a limited ability to speak. We only have a limited number of words, and they don't encompass everything that the universe could possibly mean. <clears throat> but I do think it's a, it's a reasonable way for us to see it. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that what was lacking, again, humanly speaking, what was lacking in Jesus for our salvation, what needed to be completed, was that he had to be human. He had to experience humanity. Why did he have to do that? Because he can't die if he isn't human. He had to experience suffering. He had to experience temptation. All of these things somehow are part of this package that were things that Jesus had never experienced. And in becoming our savior, becoming our kinsman redeemer, for those of you who have uh, maybe listened to some of our messages in the past about Ruth, this is an idea that comes up. It's a picture we're given in the Old Testament of a kinsman redeemer. He had to, exp he had to be human. He had to be our kinsman and, and taste death. Now, he's going to talk a lot more about this. And he's going to talk more about this idea. Um, but this is what the true magic of the incarnation is. Not just that God deigned to visit us. He could have visited us as God. Right? And, and not just that he chose to sort of be God on the inside and human on the outside. That isn't even the way scripture describes it. Scripture says that God was fully God, and Jesus was fully God and fully human. This is another one of those things that is unlike anything we've ever seen before. We don't know how to encompass this idea of being fully God and fully human. But somehow, we know this is the magic of the incarnation, that he experienced temptation and suffering and the, the physical, frail weakness of humanity. That he, he knew, he endured it all for us, even to the point of death. And why? Somehow, in tasting death for us, it saves us from tasting death. He goes on. 
both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, all human. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. These are amazing passages. This is about the God of the universe. Now, I think sometimes we think too small of God, sometimes in our, our world where we've already seen the Messiah. But if you can imagine how crazy this sounds to a Hebrew who all his life has learned about the holiness of God, that God is other, to call him our brother would be blasphemous, would be crazy. But this is what it says. The one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In your assembly I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Again, these are Old Testament references. They won't resonate for us as proofs. But for the Hebrews, they are, there are ways that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, the things I'm saying are not actually new. These are things that were prophesied. This, these, this, what we're seeing today makes sense of statements that were made in the past that didn't quite make sense to us, and now we see how they do, right? So for them, it, it makes a lot more clear proof. For us, there are verses in the Old Testament we don't have the resonance with, but that's what he's doing here. Since the children have flesh and blood, but this is the point, since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free all of those whose lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the plight of humankind, right? That we are held in slavery by our fear of death. How much of what we do is related to our short-sightedness necessarily put upon us by our mortality? How much of what we do is driven by our fear of the end, right? The legacy that we try to build, the, the, the children that we have, the, the occupations we take, the, the, the lengths we go to stay healthy, the things that we do to live, the, 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 the attempts we do to make an impact before we're gone, these are all driven, even, even our desire to grab as many toys as we can before it's over. These are all driven by a fear of death. We are enslaved by our fear of death. And here again we have this statement, this, this same idea given again that by his death, he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Well, what he's alluding to here is not just that Jesus took death so that we didn't have to taste death, but he came back to life as well. He actually broke the power of death. Now, there's a lot of ways to try to sort of intellectually explain what happened here. How does this work? How does Jesus dying and conquering death mean that we all conquer death? And I'm not sure that it's, it's something we can completely grasp. And there is a lot about scripture and this idea of entering death for us, being able to break the power of death. It's like in our very Greek uh, derivative culture, we want a mathematical formula for that. In our post-enlightenment era, we want a mathematical formula for that. We want to be able to understand the math behind how one death frees us from our death. How does Jesus' death equal no death for us? How do these things work together? And we want to kind of come up with the, 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 the syllogisms and the mathematical formulas, and I'm not sure there is one. And what's interesting is, I think that God knew there wasn't one. Or maybe, maybe there is one, but it's too complicated for us, right? Maybe if we truly understood the math of the universe, it would make perfect sense. But we don't, and we can't. But God knew that. And so what God has done is he's given us pictures, right? He's given us pictures, and for, for us, and there's a reason I'm sharing this. This is going to turn back to the Hebrews here in a second. But for us, I think for many of us, in our American culture, 
the pictures he's given us have been through story. That he's given us pictures of this idea of sacrificial love, sacrificing life so that we can have life. We have all sorts of stories around us. Some of our most favorite stories, which, which talk about the nobility of the person who tastes death so that other people don't have to. Everything from Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, where Sidney Carlson, I'm sorry, <clears throat> Sidney Carton, where he says that, that famous line, it is a far, far better thing than I have ever done. As he, and it's true, if you've read the book, he's done not much else good. But at the end of that book, when he lays his life down, spoiler alert if you've never read it, as he lays his life down for other people, it's a great moment. And we recognize at that moment that this is a redeemed person, this is someone of nobility, because he's giving up his life at the guillotine so that somebody else doesn't have to. And there's all sorts of stories like that. You know, Tony Stark start giving his life to defeat Thanos, um, or, or Obi-Wan Kenobi, who clearly, I think, is giving his life, right, and, and not having it taken from him. He, sub he submits his, his death to Darth Vader so that Luke can have a chance going forward. There's just story after story after story. We, we, and in real life, we celebrate the soldiers who are willing to give up their lives for ours. So we, we understand the nobility of the sacrifice. And we understand even there's a glimpse of the power, I think. That somehow we see that there's some, some power in that. And I think that's because these stories in and of themselves don't explain it. But they touch that part of our soul which recognizes it. Which sees that this is a rule of the universe. You know, I think a really famous story, which was written with intent of communicating sort of this, this heart formula uh, of the gospel is C.S. Lewis uh, and the Chronicles of Narnia. So some of you may remember the Chronicles of Narnia and the very first book, which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's this moment in there where, where C.S. Lewis was, a, was not only a great thinker, what we call a Christian uh, uh, apologist, someone who could make great arguments and syllogisms and logical arguments for Christianity, and, and they are still great arguments, but he understood beyond that. He understood that some things are understood with the heart or the soul and not as much with the brain. And so he also understood the power of story. And he arrived at Christianity himself through the power of story. And uh, he and his friend Tolkien used to talk a lot about the power of story to communicate the truths of the universe, including the gospel. And so the line of the witch in the wardrobe has this, this passage in it where Aslan has been killed by the White Witch, for those of you who are familiar with the story. He's been, he's been uh, executed on a stone table in order to save the lives of the, the, the humans that are in Narnia. And then, as they're mourning him, this is what happens. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. His, his body's gone. He was on the table, now he's not. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. And they looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it apparently had grown again, they had shaved it off, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. 
So why do I mention these stories that speak to us? Because God did, he gave us these stories, and he gave the Greek philosophers some, some, some ideas there too. When you read Socrates, you see that, that there are things that Socrates says which foreshadow or, or hint at the truth of the gospel. I think God gives us these hints. I think he woos us. He wants us to understand. Well, the author of Hebrews knows that for the Hebrews, they also had pictures. But the pictures they had were more clear and more direct because they were given directly to them from God himself. And the pictures were the Old Covenant. The pictures were the things that happened, the laws that they were to follow in the Old Testament that were to give them a hint, an understanding of this idea of the death of one being used to bring uh, atonement to another and to free them from death. And he's pointing out that this is why Jesus had to become human in order to redeem humans. Let's keep going, and we'll see. He's going to start to paint some of these pictures that the Hebrews see. He says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Right? What's the whole point of the gospel? What is the whole point of Jesus? It's not for the angels' redemption. It's for ours. For this reason, he had to be made like them. Right? If he was redeeming the angels, he'd be made like an angel. <laughs> Perhaps. It says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Atonement means it's a complete redemption. It means that the sins are paid for. And this is what the author of Hebrews says, that he became a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This idea of a high priest and this idea of atonement are both things that they have pictures of in the Old Testament. Now, under Jesus, we have the reality. We have Jesus himself being the high priest. But by saying he's the high priest, we're saying that he's the fulfillment of the shadow of what was seen before. This may be something you may or may not recognize. This is called the Ark of the Covenant. So while we're talking about stories, some of you may remember that classic movie. And I guess I have become old enough now that movies that I saw in the theater in high school are now classic movies. Because I don't know how you can call Raiders of the Lost Ark anything except classic. So, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Pardon me. In that movie, this is what they're looking for, right? They're looking for the Ark, what's called the Ark of the Covenant. It is a real thing, and it is indeed lost. <laughs> no one has found it, not even Indiana Jones. Um, some people claim that it's in Ethiopia, buried with the Queen of Sheba in her tomb. But we don't know where it is. But the Ark of the Covenant is, is a historical thing. So, here's what the Ark of the Covenant is, and then we're going to read about it a little bit in Hebrews. So, the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant is the same covenant we're talking about. It's the law. It's the old covenant. So, when Moses came down from the mountain with the stone tablets where the law of God was written they took that and they put that inside this box. That's what an ark is. Ark literally means box. That's why Noah had an ark. It was a big one that he put all the animals in that floated across the water. And the covenant has an ark. It's a smaller one. So they, they put these, these things in the ark and God told them to. And he told them to build the covenant to these exact specifications with these angels on top and, and these poles here that are here. That's because the, they were treat, to treat the ark of the covenant with such respect that they didn't even touch the ark. They, held, they carried it by these poles so that they wouldn't actually touch the ark. Why? Because God wanted them to see the ark of the covenant as the throne of God. Of course it's not the throne of God. It's a box made by human hands. As pointed out other places in the Old Testament, the entire, you know, the, the earth is his footstool, right? The heavens are his throne. So 
It's not really the throne of God, but he wanted them to see it that way because he wanted to give them, again, a tangible picture of his presence with them. He wanted them to know he was with him, whenever, with them. Whenever they carried him around, carried the ark around, God was with them. So they had the ark. Well, then they build this thing called a tabernacle, which is, eventually becomes the temple. The tabernacle's a tent. The temple is a permanent structure once they settle somewhere, um, which is made to the same specifications from God. But in either case, what you have is the ark is placed in a very important room called the Holy of Holies. So within the temple, you have increasing levels of holiness. The idea being that as you move forward into the temple, you're moving closer and closer to the throne of God, to this otherness, to this holiness, which is so unapproachable that you need to approach it with, with awe and with fear. And so there's levels as you go, right? So there's the outer courts, and then there's the temple, and then there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant sits, and in that ark, there's a number of things. There's the covenant. There's also some other special, uh, special historical artifacts that would help them remember the power of God. And and there's a curtain. Uh, and curtain sounds too. It's a very thick curtain. It's like a wall made of fabric in some ways. Um, and and so there's a very thick curtain between the holy of holies and the holy place. And only one person is allowed in the holy of holies every year, once a year, and that's the high priest. And we're going to come to that story again later, so I'm not going to go any further into the details of that because there's a very interesting point made by the author of Hebrews later, and I'm going to save the sort of the, sort of the big reveal about the Holy of Holies till then. But I did want you to know at least that is what we're talking about here as we keep reading. Let's read and, and let's see what he tells us um, about the high priest because he says the Lord is our high priest. So let's read. This is from Leviticus, and I just want you to see this is one of the pictures that God gave the Hebrews. He told them, this is what I want you to do long before Jesus so that they would begin to get used to this idea, this concept of a high priest, of atonement, of a sacrifice of death so that we wouldn't have to taste death. He wants them to get used to the idea of what Jesus is going to do for us so that when it happens, we can understand it better. So here's what happens in Leviticus. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Again, they did not take all this seriously. They didn't see God in, in sort of proper order, and so they were very casual about it, and they actually died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. This cover is called the atonement cover. For I will appear in a cloud over the atonement cover. Appearing in a cloud over it is like saying, It's my throne. This is where I will be, right? So he's telling him, he's setting this precedent very early on. Aaron is the high priest. And even the high priest is not just to come in whenever he wants. He says, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Right? The, 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 the death of these animals makes way for him. This is some of that atonement. This is some of that understanding. This is the picture. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. He must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. So he has to be completely clean, clothing and body and everything. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So for himself, he has to offer atonement. And then once he's made atonement for himself, then... He is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. This is the origin of that term. 
Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering or for an atonement. So, let me keep going, then we'll go back. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So what, what he's talking about is once a year, on what's called Yom Kippur these days, the Day of Atonement, once a year, the Israelites were to send the high priest in to the Holy of Holies. It was the only time he could go in. He had to cleanse himself first, and he had to make a sacrifice for his own atonement because he was not, he was, he was sinful, so he had to save himself first in a sense. He had to make atonement for himself using the, the lamb and the, the, I mean, sorry, the bull. Then he had to make atonement for the whole Israelite nation. So once a year, he would sacrifice his goat for the sins of the nation. But there was another thing they did, which was called the scapegoat. And what they did is they were supposed to put all the sins on the goat and then send it out of the camp, chase it out of the camp. And all the sins would go with it, right? Now, you may say, that is all so silly, so ritualistic. Indeed, it is. But see, God didn't actually think this was actually making them holy. <laughs> and I think most of the Israelites even understood that it wasn't actually making them holy. It was an act of faith which said to God, we trust you to overlook our sin. We trust you to start us off with a clean slate even though we're a mess. And they understood, I think, the nature of it to that degree. And if they didn't, God spends a lot of the Old Testament time through the prophets telling them that they should understand that. Says things like to him, like, do you think I'm really hungry? Do I really need your bowls? You just go sacrifice and your heart's not in it? It doesn't mean anything to me. But they're all pictures, right? Not only are they pictures for the present time for the Israelites to understand that it is God who is covering their sin, that it is faith and obedience that God looks for, but it's also a picture of what's to come that Jesus will be our scapegoat. That Jesus will be the sacrificial lamb. That Jesus will be the atonement for our sins. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling them. That all these things that happened to you, all the old covenant, it's valuable, it's good, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But did you really think that God's throne was actually an ark? Of course you didn't. It was a representation. It was a picture of something so we could understand. Well, so too was the covenant inside the ark. So too was the Holy of Holies and the curtain, which we'll talk about later. And the author of Hebrews is going to talk about a lot of these things. But he starts by saying Jesus is our high priest. Remember the high priest who could go in and make atonement for the nation? Well, that's what Jesus has done. But he's done it not by sacrificing a bull or a goat or someone else, but by sacrificing himself for you. And that's the point he's getting to here. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. He understands your suffering. He understands the, the feeling. He understands the, the, he understands death and frailty. To taste death, he had to be human. To be the sacrifice, he had to be human. As a human, he also relates to our temptation and our suffering. He never sinned. That doesn't mean he didn't feel the pull or the weakness of temptation. These are amazing thoughts, and they only get deeper. See, right now, the author of Hebrews is just still setting the stage. He's simply trying to communicate the idea that the Old Covenant and the High Priest in the Old Covenant were not betraying him when we embrace Jesus and the salvation he brings. We are, in fact, embracing everything that the pictures of the Old Testament gave us. The author of Hebrews is going to get more specific as we go further about some of these pictures. It's going to be great. It's going to be so cool to see. Right now, he's just trying to make this amazing point that Jesus became human, chose to become human. Why on earth would God do that? 
I mean, really, think this through for a moment. Are we that big a prize? <laughs> We're kind of a mess. What kind of God looks down at the earth, sees all the humans, the wars, the fighting, the brutality, the violence, the deception, the lies, looks down upon the situations we get ourselves in and says, gosh, I really love those guys. What kind of God then says, I wish they were better? But what kind of God then says, I am going to take care of it for them. And what I'm going to do to take care of it is I'm going to join them. <laughs> See, talk about getting down in the mud. You know, God doesn't just stand on high and throw charity at us. He gets down with us in the trenches. He became human. The great prophet Isaiah said, His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. The Ark of the Covenant was God with us in image. It was God with us in representation. It was God with us as a picture that he was. But Jesus was actually God with us. Walking the earth, choosing to become human, willing himself to suffer the pain and the temptation, all of it that we do. And you say, why? There had to be a better way. You know what's fascinating to me? It's the story we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll wrap up with this and then, and then read our final verse in chapter 3. The Garden of Gethsemane, you may have heard this story. Jesus has gone through his whole ministry, his 33 years of life. And he's been with the apostles and he's been teaching them. He's been prepping them. He's been trying to introduce them to the idea that, that, that everything in the Old Covenant is leading to this moment. That he is the Messiah. And that he's the Messiah for all peoples, not even just for the Jews. And he's been trying to get this all across to them. But now it's come to the big moment where the Day of Atonement has arrived. John Kippur has come. Jesus is about to experience death so that we don't have to taste this death. This, and we'll talk again. I understand the questions. Don't we physically still die? We do. We'll, we'll talk about that. As Christians, we believe that death is just a, a doorway into life. But we'll talk about but as he's getting ready to die on the cross, he's in the garden, and he's, he's, uh, he's human. He doesn't want to die. He's, he's experiencing the pain and the anguish, not only of death, but of separation from the Father, of carrying the weight of the sins upon him, of being the scapegoat. Nobody wants to be a scapegoat. Being a scapegoat for the whole world. And he's in the, he's in the garden, and he's praying. He brings his best friends with him, says, stay awake with me, because I'm really distraught, and they don't. Which is, again, we're, we're, we're often not the best of friends. And, and he says, stay with me, and, and they sleep. And, but, but it says while he's there, he prays, and he prays this. He says, God, if there's any other way, let's do that. <laughs> he says, I know why I'm here. I know my mission is to bring atonement to the people. If there's any other way for us to do that, let's do that. But if not, then Father, your will, that this is what we'll do. See, I think that moment is there not only to reveal to us the humanity of Jesus, but to reveal to us the truth that our only hope is Jesus' atonement on the cross. If there was another way, he would have taken it. <laughs> if there was another hope for mankind, he would have taken it. But there wasn't. That's what that reveals to us. This was the only hope, the only way. You can say it doesn't seem fair to you. Sometimes people will say to me, it doesn't seem fair that there's only one way to the Father. But you know who might really feel that way? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, if, I'm sure he didn't. 
But to think there's only one way to the Father, how unfair is that for him? Of course he'd like there to be another way. He says it right there in the garden, but there's not, and he knows there's not. That's why he came. He was part of this plan since before the creation of the universe. It's what we're told in Ephesians. So, in light of all that, that there is no other way, the author of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrews, how? How can you so easily turn aside from the fulfillment of everything that we've been seeing, the fulfillment of all the pictures that we've been given? Would you now turn your back on that death on your behalf? Would you now turn your back on the Messiah who conquered death for you? He says, don't do that. Don't, don't go back to the pictures, to the bulls and the calves and the lambs, when the Lord and the Messiah stands in front of you with love and open arms. And then he says this at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters. Whoa, there's that word holy. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. I thought God was holy. I thought God was other. Yeah, but as he became human, conquered death on our behalf, we become part of his family. Instead of him being drugged down, he lifts us up. He lifts us up. And we now are also other. We're not what we used to be. We're something very different. Now, we still have our flesh, and that's a whole other ball of wax. But in, in many ways, we have now been made new. We are new creations, and we are now holy. And it's God who says so. So he says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. See, now you belong in heaven. Now you have a new home. You have a new home because you're new people. Because the atonement of Jesus doesn't just overlook your sins, as happened in the Old Testament. It isn't just that God decides for another year to give you another pass, <laughs> based upon your faith. It's that he has actually lifted you up and made you holy, made you righteous, made you a share, an inheritor of the heavenly calling. This is why death is no longer death for us. We know that we pass through death into life. We know, says the epistle writers, we actually already have passed into life. We just can't see it as clearly while we're still in our old frail bodies. But this is what he says. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly callings, what should we do then? If this is true, what do we do? It's very simple. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Don't turn your back on Jesus and look to the law. Look to Jesus. Embrace him. Fix your thoughts on him. Right? Like a nail, just hammer them in that they go nowhere else. That they are devoted, that you are constantly, your thoughts are fixed on Jesus. Why? Because he is our high priest. He has made atonement for us, and he is our atonement. And he is our brother. And he has conquered death so that we don't have to. And he has come back to life, breaking the power of death so that we no longer have to live as slaves to the fear of death. Slaves to our own mortality. It's an amazing, amazing story. The gospel is an incredible thing. And we've just begun the book of Hebrews. We've just barely begun to see the picture. And he says to them, fix your eyes on Jesus. So too, Christians, holy brothers and sisters, children of God, made righteous by the blood of Christ. Listen to me carefully. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. 
It is so crazy that we are so easily distracted. We are so easily distracted. We turn our eyes to everything around us. We turn our eyes to so many false messiahs and promises of salvation and redemption. We turn our eyes to so many false prophets and ideas that are going to bring us healing. We turn our minds and our attentions to the things of the earth, the, the, the things of the earth which we are no longer even called to. We are called to the heavenly calling. Does God call us as he did to live incarnationally and get in the mud? Yeah, he does. He calls us to live in love with people, but we will do that best when we fix our eyes not on the mud, but on Jesus. Fix our thoughts on Jesus. Remember that he is your only hope. There is no other way. There is no other chance for redemption. You cannot do it yourself. And the problem with the pictures in the Old Testament is the high priest had to, had to make atonement for himself before he could make atonement for others. And that in itself is a limited, limited option of atonement. But Jesus was God, perfect, who became human, made even more perfect for the purpose of our salvation. So that we can fix our eyes on him and nowhere else. Brothers and sisters of God, one thing the author of Hebrews would say to us that is so timely for us right now is do not let your minds and your eyes and your thoughts be distracted by the myriad of, of news and promises and information and prophecies around you. If they pull your eyes from Jesus, they are not worth your attention. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Because he is our apostle and high priest. He is our rabbi and teacher. He is our brother he is the one who loves us more than we've ever been loved. And he demonstrated that at the cross by his death and his conquering of death. Thanks for joining us. We will pick up with Hebrews 3 next week. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.